Hey folks, coming in hot with a little ad uh, for myself in my upcoming book. If you like this podcast, you are definitely going to like the book I wrote based on it. Unruly Figures, 20 Tales of Rebels, Rule Breakers, and Revolutionaries covers several people that I've never covered on the podcast. From queens of piracy in the Mediterranean to rebellious artists in New York to aboriginal resistance leaders in Tasmania, this book is full of rebellious folks you may have never heard of. It comes out wherever books are sold on March 5th. Pre-order it now. Link is in the show notes. This podcast is supported by Ritual. So, y'all, remember how I was in the hospital back in July? Well, it's time for me to admit that it was because I ate bad sushi. So embarrassing. I should have listened to my gut and not bought sushi at that random grocery store. Afterward, my stomach was so messed up from like weeks of antibiotics that I knew I needed to get a new probiotic added to my regimen. That's when my friend told me about Ritual Vitamins. They have Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one clinically studied prebiotic, probiotic, and postbiotic that can help support a balanced gut microbiome. I started taking Ritual right away, and the upset stomach that I was getting most afternoons went away. I love that Ritual packs so much good stuff into one minty capsule. And these vitamins don't need to be refrigerated, so it's like really easy to take with you when you travel, and y'all know I travel a lot. It's time to listen to your gut. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Ritual is offering my listeners 30% off during your first month. Visit ritual.com backslash unruly to start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com backslash U-N-R-U-L-Y for 30% off. Hey everyone, welcome to Unruly Figures, the podcast that celebrates history's greatest rule breakers. I'm your host, Valerie Clark, and today I'm going to be covering someone who has probably influenced your mailbox in the last couple of weeks, Henry Cole. He was a cultural juggernaut of the Victorian era. He was a patron of the arts and helped establish the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. He was hugely influential in the field of industrial design, he wrote children's books, and he invented the Christmas card. Yes, strange as it may seem, we can very clearly trace the origin of the Christmas card to Henry Cole in the year 1843. I'm excited to tell you all this story during the season of Holiday Cards. Real quick, before we get into his story, for a full transcript of today's episode, head over to unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. In addition to the full transcript, you can also get ad-free episodes, a bibliography of my research, photos of everyone I'm covering, discussion threads, and so much more. So check it out. All right, let's hop back in time. For this episode, I have to give a big shout out to Stuff You Should Know, who recently did an episode on Henry Cole's Christmas cards. Without them, I never would have even heard of him. So, Henry Cole, Sir Henry Cole, as he's known to us now, was born on July 15, 1808 in Bath, England. He was the son of Captain Henry Robert Cole of the 1st Dragoon Guard and his wife, Letitia Dormer. When he was old enough, young Cole was sent to Christ's Hospital School, a boarding school that's still in operation today. At the age of 15, he left school and became a clerk for Francis Palgrave, who was then a sub-commissioner under the Record Commission, which looked into the public accessibility of the state archives. Cole primarily transcribed records for Palgrave at this time and spent his leisure time studying art history. He also studied watercolor painting under English painter David Cox and exhibited a few sketches at the Royal Academy of Art. Around this time, he and his father moved into the home of English novelist Thomas Love Peacock, a satirist. 
Cole and Peacock became friends, despite their 23-year age difference. Cole drew for Peacock's written work and helped him write his musical critiques. Peacock taught Cole to, quote, live two lives, a life of public service in the morning and afternoon, and a personally creative life in the evenings and on weekends. This seems like a philosophy Cole would follow his entire life. Peacock also introduced Cole to several influential people in England at the time, including philosopher and parliament member John Stuart Mill, who Cole befriended. Through Peacock, Cole also befriended Charles Buller and Sir William Molesworth. They would remain close for a long time, and in 1837, Buller, Molesworth, and Cole, along with a few others, established Guide Newspaper with Cole as the editor. It ran weekly for just over one year before it was discontinued. This newspaper was related to some possible whistleblowing Cole was doing related to his work at the Record Commission. Cole would later go on to become the editor of Historical Register, as well as a regular contributor to Illustrated London News. He began to publish handbooks of various national art institutions, including a handbook for the architecture, sculpture, tombs, and decorations of Westminster Abbey. I say all of this sort of like in a really quick-hitting list up front, because as interesting and cool as all of these things are, they're not what Cole is remembered for at all. I found most of this buried in the middle of his obituary. On December 28, 1833, so 188 years ago today, for anyone listening on the day that this episode releases, Cole married Marion Fairman Bond in Westminster, London. He was 25 and she was 21. Unfortunately, I couldn't find much information on how they met or their marriage in general. They had eight or nine children together, though. Through the 1830s, Cole continued to make a name for himself in the various records-keeping offices of the English government. In 1838, the Public Record Office Act established a, well, public record office, and Cole was appointed as one of the four senior record keepers. This also came out of that whistleblowing Cole was doing that I mentioned a moment ago. That same year, he also became part of a committee fighting for postal reform. For a large period of his life, these were the sorts of roles Cole occupied in British society. They weren't particularly exciting or heroic, but they were useful, important, and meant he had a large breadth of friends and acquaintances that he knew through both his writing and his government work. In a review of the book The Great Exhibitor, The Life and Times of Henry Cole, an author for the Studies in the Decorative Arts Journal wrote that, quote, Administrative excellence was not considered a type of genius by Thomas Carlyle, whose heroes were mainly generals and philosophers. Victorians accorded the status of popular hero to profit-making manufacturers, successful engineers, and highly visible reformers in Parliament. Cole remained a civil servant in second-tier posts who mastered the backroom political machinery of Victorian England. He was good at raising a social outcry through persistent agitation in the press and contacts in Buckingham Palace. He made front-page news when the papers published his anonymous articles, but he never had a dramatic role in a headline story himself. His talents encompassed those of a modern lobbyist or advertiser. His controversial methods of rallying people to a cause elicited either intense liking or distaste from his peers. End quote. Unfortunately, I couldn't get my hands on a copy of The Great Exhibitor in time for the writing of this episode, but I liked what this review had to say because I think it situates Cole in a very meaningful context. I found two different references to those, quote, controversial methods mentioned, but I never really found out what it was he did. I imagine that if we're comparing him to a lobbyist today, then he probably was doing something similar to what lobbyists do today, which can also be distasteful or controversial. As Geoffrey Summerfield wrote in the Children's Literature Journal, Cole's competency and vision made him very popular, and he was often called on to work on various projects with his friends, some of which I've already mentioned. Summerfield, who studied Cole's work extensively, noted that, quote, 
Often, Cole's diary degenerates into a list of people he had to see, ending with the admission that he was reduced to passing the evening and napping. Only once, in February 1843, does he admit that he is trying to pack too much in. I have not worked much of late, he wrote, because I have found my head full and aching. End quote. My friends, this is what we call foreshadowing. Because suffice to say that by this point, Henry Cole was a popular guy, a man about town, as Josh and Chuck describe him in Stuff You Should Know. He had made a lot of friends and was largely well-liked by his peers, which created a very specific kind of struggle for him. He was absolutely inundated with holiday letters. You see, in the Victorian era, people wrote each other letters every holiday season. You've probably met one or two people who still do this today, and know one of my aunts at least used to. They're lovely. The purpose is to send them to all your friends and family and sort of catch them up on your family's activities in the past year. Saying, you know, oh, we lost grandma, but Richard married and Elizabeth finally mastered Chopin's etude, etc. For Cole, it probably wouldn't have been the end of the world if he didn't send out one of these letters every year. He was known to be a very busy person, and even though he was married to Marion, she was busy too. She was raising four children by this point, plus writing a book of her own, Mother's Primer, which helped mothers teach their children to read. Had the Cole family not sent out Christmas letters in 1843, people probably would have forgiven them. What was less forgivable to the Victorians was not acknowledging a letter received. Even if he didn't initiate a letter-writing correspondence, Cole was expected to write people back for every letter they sent him. It was considered the height of rudeness to not send a letter in return to someone else's holiday letters, so it was probably with a fair amount of trepidation that he watched these letters arrive day after day. He probably received dozens, if not hundreds, that he was expected to respond to. And remember, he's expected to do all of this by hand, which takes much longer than for us to send an email. So his solution? Call on an artist buddy and make his own life much more simple. In 1843, Cole commissioned artist John C. Horsley to make an image that Cole could easily have reproduced on cardstock. The result was a triptych featuring Cole and his family in the middle panel, enjoying a meal together, flanked by images of his family helping the poor. At the top, it had a little blank for who the card is for, and at the bottom, it had a little space for Cole to sign his name. A banner across the middle of the image says, A Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. The card was printed lithographically on cardstock, then hand-colored. It looked a lot like a postcard, actually. I've included an image of it in the substack, and I really recommend you check it out. It's, it's pretty cute. So Cole commissioned 1,000 of these cards. When he had used as many as he needed, he sold them for sixpence each, making them a bit expensive. The advertisement he put for their sale in the Athenium newspaper went, Just published, a Christmas congratulation card or picture emblematical of old English festivity to perpetuate kind recollections between dear friends. Sounds nice, right? Okay. His cards were very controversial when he sent them out in 1843. Not to put too fine a point on it, but this was breaking a huge social rule, especially for members of the upper class. While his cars included art depicting the family, they didn't give any concrete updates on his family, which was the whole point of the holiday letters. Even more controversially, the cards also seemed to depict his young children drinking out of wine glasses proffered by relatives. The mid-19th century was marked by a growing temperance movement in England, and people were not impressed by this depiction of alcohol consumption by children. But that backlash wasn't enough to stop holiday guards in their tracks. Other prominent Victorians recognized what Cole had really invented, a way to save time. They began setting out their own cards as well. 
Ironically, I couldn't find any information saying whether or not Cole continued to only send holiday cards, or if he eventually got around to sending letters again. The 1843 holiday season is the only one that seems to be documented for him as far as letter writing goes. Though there were some early adopters, it took until the 1860s for Christmas cards to really become popularized in Great Britain. By that point, they had also made it to the U.S. According to Smithsonian Magazine, quote, appreciation of the quality and the artistry of the cards grew in the late 1800s, spurred in part by competitions organized by card publishers with cash prizes offered for the best designs. People soon collected Christmas cards like they would butterflies or coins, and the new crop each season were reviewed in newspapers like books or films today, end quote. As printing became cheaper, and especially when offset printing allowed us to print more easily in color, something else that Cole had helped create made Christmas cards more popular, the uniform penny post. In 1840, the penny post made it possible for anybody to send a letter weighing less than half an ounce any distance in the UK for a single penny, which popularized sending letters for people of every class. Before this, the fees for sending letters were confusing, expensive, and paid for by the recipient, which could be a problem if you didn't know you had mail coming. Cole actually helped push the legislation for the penny push through Parliament. He's sometimes even credited with designing the first adhesive stamp ever, which was for the new penny post system, called the penny black, though that part is disputed. I didn't look too far into it, but according to Wikipedia at least, it took several people to design the stamp, and it ended up being discontinued after a year anyway. In the 1968 book, The History of the Christmas Card, author George Boudet wrote, quote, In the manufacture of Victorian Christmas cards, we witnessed the emergence of a form of popular art, accommodated to the transitory conditions of society in its production methods, end quote. Which, considering Cole's love for industrial design, which I'll get to in a second, I think is a really lovely perspective. Like, I think seeing the mass production of beautiful cards today would make Cole really happy. I'll tell you what comes next after a brief word from a sponsor. Today, I want to tell you all about empowering women as leaders. This Texas-based nonprofit provides scholarships and mentoring to women attending college at a non-traditional age. They have given over $300,000 in scholarships to over 120 women aged 23 to 64 to help them finish their degrees. NEWL has paired over 100 professionals with students for long-lasting mentoring relationships. I didn't know this until I heard of EWL, but women who have a mentor in college are actually 130% more likely to hold a leadership position in their workplace later in life. While financial aid is, of course, incredibly important, mentoring helps these students make a difference in the way they approach the rest of their lives. Right now, EWL is raising money for their next round of scholarships. Every little bit helps. So head over to EWLUSA.org to learn more about how you can support their students in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. Again, that's that's EWLUSA.org. So that's how we got Christmas cards. I could leave it here, but I want to tell you more about Cole. He lived a good long life after his controversial holiday card invention, after all. So around the same time that he invented Christmas cards, Cole began using the pseudonym Felix Summerlee for various projects of his, including recording children's fairy tales. 
He wasn't writing them himself, but instead recording tales that had been passed down orally for a long time, including Jack and the Beanstalk, Reynard the Fox, Beauty and the Beast, and Red Riding Hood. The tales he recorded were combined into Felix Summerlee's home treasury, which Joffrey Summerfield noticed was part of, quote, the emergence of emphatically non-didactic books for children. Not only did the home treasury help establish such books as worthy of serious acceptance, but it helped to place the printing, illustration, and production of children's books on a new footing, end quote. We probably would have gotten children's books like Goodnight Moon anyway, but Cole helped this process along, and I think that's kind of fun. As a side note, when his wife Marion published her book about teaching children to read in 1844, she did it under the pseudonym Mrs. Felix Summerlee, clearly a nod to her husband's pseudonym, which I think is very cute. This use of pseudonyms was a fairly common practice, especially for women of the Victorian era, because it theoretically protected the author from censure or criticism, especially if they were publishing something a little bit radical. I stumbled on a great senior thesis from a woman named Anna Lapp, who studied at Ohio State, which gets into women and pseudonyms a bit more, if that's something you're interested in learning more about. The link to her thesis is in the substack. In 1845, the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce, with Prince Albert as its patron, announced a competition that Cole entered into. He designed a tea service, which was manufactured by Minton's, Europe's leading ceramic factory during the Victorian era. Of the tea service, Cole said it, quote, had as much beauty and ornament as is consistent with cheapness, end quote. He was trying to balance form as well as function, making sure that the tea service was comfortable to use, beautiful to look at, and also inexpensive enough that most people could afford it. It was considered a success, and he joined the society in 1846, probably based on this design. His tea service sold so well that in 1847, Cole used his Felix Summerlee pseudonym again to establish an entire company based around his ideas of combining form and function, Felix Summerlee's Art Manufactory. Through it, he hired artists to design various products that would be then manufactured by the leading manufacturers of the day, continuing this idea of beautiful but affordable. Not everyone loved this. There was definitely some criticism in the late 1840s that Cole was neither artist nor manufacturer, yet was somehow ripping off both parties to make money. This doesn't seem to have been his intention, but I guess intention isn't everything. That article also called out Felix Summerlee as a pseudonym for Henry Cole, proving that even in the 1840s, pseudonyms didn't always protect a person's reputation. For a few years, the workshop oversaw the production of several small-scale works of art that were intended to, quote, disseminate good design amongst the general public. At least one such item, called the Bridesing Stand, modeled by sculptor John Bell, remains in the British Royal Collection Trust. There's a photo of it in the subsec as well. I recommend you check it out. I think it's really pretty. It's, it's too bad that the business only lasted until about 1850. During his time running Summerlee's Art Manufactory, Cole was also using his membership at the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers, and Commerce, today called the Royal Society of Art, or RSA, to create exhibitions of art manufacturers. The first one was held in 1847, with enlarged exhibitions following in 1848 and 1849. This was part of a larger goal to encourage good design education among the British public. Also in 1849, Cole and his friend Richard Redgrave founded the Journal of Design and Manufacturers, which they also edited. It ran until 1852 for a total of six volumes. The journal aimed to, quote, improve the standards of British industry. The journal concentrated exclusively on the decorative and applied arts, targeting a middle-class audience that the editors felt needed instruction and taste. The inclusion of actual samples of fabrics and wallpapers heightened the journal's appeal and effectiveness. 
The first volume contains 44 fabric patterns and upwards of 200 engravings, end quote. And yet, despite how useful that journal and his other publications are to historians of Victorian culture, design reformers of the 1840s, like Cole, have remained, quote, somewhat obscure in the writings of Victorian historians, perhaps because there's so much interest in later generations. In that episode of SYSK, Josh and Chuck talk about how Cole is known not as the father of industrial design, but as the granddaddy of it. And yet, in 1848, it was Cole who proposed to Prince Albert a, quote, unprecedented great exhibition of the industry of all nations. It took a few years to put together, but they secured royal backing and were off to the races. The great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations, sometimes also called much more simply the Crystal Palace Exhibition, opened in Hyde Park in 1851 and was, by a lot of measures, a triumph. According to Britannica, quote, the exhibits on display at the Crystal Palace included scientific and technological marvels from many different countries, as well as works of art and craftsmanship. Some six million people attended the exhibition, which earned a substantial profit. A fund that was created with the profit still provides fellowships to British students in fields such as engineering and industrial design. The legacy of the Crystal Palace was immense. Its critical and financial success ensured that the world's fairs would continue to be held, end quote. Cole's success as part of the development of the Great Exhibition led directly to his 1852 appointment as secretary of a new school dedicated to better design education in London. It was called the Museum of Manufactures and was housed at Marlborough House in St. James. Initially, it held many decorative objects from the Crystal Palace Exhibition, but the collection quickly outgrew Marlborough House. It moved and was renamed the South Kensington Museum, and Cole was named as the founding director of it. He remained there until he retired in 1873, and his astute stewardship grew the collection and cemented it as a useful and popular institution in London. Today, we call it the Victoria and Albert Museum. Throughout the 1850s, 60s, and 70s, Cole spent his time ensuring that art, education, and access in London grew stronger and more widespread. He advocated for elementary education of art and was the director of the Department of Practical Art within the School of Design. That school became the National Art Training School in 1863 and is now called the Royal College of Art. After the death of Prince Albert in 1861, Cole was part of the fundraising push for Royal Albert Hall, which finally opened in 1871. At some point, Cole became involved with the Royal College of Science, now part of Imperial College London. I couldn't figure out exactly what his role was there, though it must have been influential because for a long time the mathematics department was based in the Henry Cole Wing until that building was donated to the Victoria and Albert Museum. He was also involved in the establishment of the National Training School for Music with the Society of Arts, designed after a much earlier proposal by Prince Albert. It's now called the Royal College of Music. By the way, if all of this doesn't sound like enough work to have on one's plate, Cole also spent part of his time in the 1860s learning to etch. He exhibited his own art once again at the Royal Academy in 1866. Cole was known to be a hard worker and passionate about his projects. He was often called Old King Cole by the press and was known to have the backing of Queen Victoria and especially Prince Albert. In fact, whenever the prince consort wanted some support on one of his projects, such as the colleges I mentioned before, he was known to say, quote, we must have steam, get Cole. When Cole retired in 1873, he had completed 50 years of continuous public service. In 1875, he was knighted by Queen Victoria in recognition of all of his work and success. On Tuesday, the 18th of April, 1882, Henry Cole died painlessly and without warning, probably of a heart attack or some other kind of heart-related issue. 
He was survived by his wife, Marion, their eight children, and at least two grandchildren. As for his original Christmas card, only a few remain in the world. In 2001, the card Cole sent to his grandmother was sold at auction for 22,500 pounds sterling. That's about 38,000 pounds today, or nearly 51,000 US dollars. While he's not a household name, his influence touched a lot of the major UK art institutions still around, and he's remembered with various plaques and acknowledgements around the city of London. And maybe now, if you're still sending out your holiday cards, I know I'm behind, you'll be able to thank Cole for saving you from writing long letters to everyone you know every holiday season. Well, that's the story of Sir Henry Cole and his invention of the Christmas card. I know it's a bit shorter than usual, but I figured it's the holidays and we've all got a lot going on. I hope you enjoyed it. You can let me know your thoughts or send me photos of your Christmas card collection on Instagram and Twitter. My username is unrulyfigures. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everyone who has liked and subscribed to Unruly Figures. I'm told that this is where credits go, but Unruly Figures is researched, written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, all by myself. So if you are into supporting independent artists, please share this with at least one person you know. If you're feeling really generous, rate the show and leave a review for Unruly Figures on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find this work. If you want to subscribe, you can do that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Unruly Figures. Come hang out. If you want to see photos related to today's episode, come find this episode's transcript on Substack. It'll be full of photos. While there, you can also subscribe for ad-free episodes and behind-the-scenes content. That's all going to be at unrulyfigures.substack.com. That's U-N-R-U-L-Y-F-I-G-U-R-E-S dot S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. Until next time, stay unruly. Mm-hmm.